right, let us get started. 12.30 by my watch. So, welcome. If this is your first time here, we're really glad to have you. You've come in sort of near the home stretch of our study of Leviticus. We've been doing it all year, since January. And we started the book uh, talking about what Leviticus is, what it isn't, how it's a not a, a set of rules for Christians to follow today, but rather it was the handbook for Israel and their entire sacrificial priesthood tabernacle system. So everything in Leviticus is geared towards teaching Israel how to use this thing that God has just given them at the end of Exodus called the tabernacle. And that includes not just the offerings and the sacrifices that go in it, but also the people who serve over those offerings and sacrifices, people who actually minister in the presence of God in this little portable Mount Sinai, which is what the tabernacle is. And so last week we started looking at how God had called the priests. So you had the tribe of Levi, right, the Levites, and they were the ones who worked, who oversaw the tabernacle. So they were broken into four clans, and, uh, or three clans, and then Aaron sons. And they would take the tabernacle down, put it up, transport it, <clears throat> do all of those things. Then within the Levites, you had the priests, the descendants of Aaron. And uh, the priests were to actually perform the sacrifices, to actually take the animals, to actually, um, they, they served as like teachers, they had to teach people the law. They served as health inspectors. They had to check for, as we look, things like impurities, skin diseases, household fungal infections, all that kind of stuff. They had to serve as butchers. They were the ones who would actually kill the animal, process the animal, remove the hide, uh, cut it up. So they were kind of like all of those jobs in one. And this is how Israel subsisted as a people. And if Israel wanted to um, have a feast, Usually the animal that was eaten, like this, like today, we have uh, food here. We've got some beef and uh, some rice and all this delicious stuff. Well, <clears throat> this would have probably come from a sacrifice in Israel. The, 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 it's the way that they would get their meat. Not, not every meal necessarily, but in a large part, their society was based around this uh, having a shared meal with God in his presence. That's, what, that's kind of what the, the tabernacle system was all about. And so when you entered into the tabernacle to worship, you entered into sacred space. You entered into a space that was different than the space outside the tabernacle. And the further in you went, the more holy and sanctified that space was until you got to the very center of the Holy of Holies, which you were not allowed to go into. Only one person could do that and only once a year, and that was the high priest. One priest who was anointed with oil and who served as the only person in all of Israel who could stand, who, who could be like Moses and stand in the presence of God. So that was sort of the great graduated system of holiness that Israel worked in. Now the priests we saw last week, they had certain restrictions on who they could marry. Um, and that had to do with preserving bloodline. It had to do with preserving the idea of sanctity, holiness, uh, serving as a model for Israel, but also being held to a higher standard. Priests were held to a higher standard. The closer you are to God in Scripture, the more rigorous or, or, or the, the stricter the standard of judgment that you're held to. And that's Old Testament and New Testament. Both recognize that concept. So again, leadership and priesthood and, and representing God before people is not something that uh, Scripture ever tells people you should aspire to. 
It's rather it's something you're called to. And the priests were called. They were chosen by heredity. They did not, you couldn't decide whether you wanted to be a priest or not. In the New Testament, when God calls his people, he gifts his people. He gives them what he wants them to be. He gifts them with the gifts that he wants them to have. He calls them with the calling that he wants to have. And so there's a cautionary tale uh, within scripture. Being a leader, being a teacher, and, and being a vocational minister is a high calling. It's a noble calling. And it's one that, that if you're called to it, it's something you should aspire for. But it's also one that comes with a higher degree of scrutiny, both among people and God himself. So then at the end of chapter 21, verse 16, we get this section. And it's not going to make a lot of sense necessarily until we get to the end of chapter 22 because of the way structurally that it's nested inside this whole section. So we're going to read it. May make a comment or two, but then we're going to go on into chapter 22 and then hopefully you'll see the connection. Yeah, I know. You are observant. I am using a different Bible. I walked out of the house this morning without the one that I normally read from. So this is a, a new revised standard. Uh, but it's still scripture and it'll still work. Yeah, no, 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 no. You should always have a backup Bible. You know, I've got another one in my car too. Some people carry like a concealed pistol. I have a concealed Bible in my glove compartment. So, in chapter 21, at the end of verse 16, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and say, No one of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the food of his God. In other words, may approach as a priest. No one who has a blemish can serve as a priest. Uh, For no one who has a blemish shall draw near. Uh, One who is blind or lame, one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long, Or one who has a broken foot or a broken hand, or a hunchback, or a dwarf, or a man with a blemish in his eyes, or an itching disease, or scabs, or crushed testicles. Ouch. No descendant of Aaron, the priest, who has a blemish, shall come near to offer the Lord's offerings by fire, since he has a blemish. He shall not come near to offer the food of his God. He may eat the food of his God and of the most holy as well as the holy, but he shall not come near the curtain or approach the altar because he has a blemish, that he may not profane my sanctuary, for I am the Lord, I sanctify him. Thus Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons, to all the people of Israel. So right here, and we're going to keep reading for a minute, but I just want you to know, he's, he's it's very specific in ruling out who can be a priest that ministers at the altar. This is not talking about priests of, so if you're born in the tribe of Levi and you're born with a physical handicap or deformity, does that mean you're out of luck and you can't, you don't, you don't get food and you don't get taken care of? No, none of that. You're still a Levite. You still are taken care of. You can still eat of the offerings. That's part of the system, how God would provide for the tribes of Levi. Does it mean you have to do, offer any kind of sin sacrifice or anything? Are you less human? Because, no, not at all. There's a restriction on what you can do in terms of offering the sacrifice, approaching the altar, because... That which takes place at the curtain, that which takes place on the altar, is to be without blemish. Because it, is, it has meaning and it has symbolism. And it's important for Israel because the entire sacrificial tabernacle system is one big object lesson. It's one big visual aid. And so God is delineating specific roles. And the fact that the priest must be unblemished, must have no marks or no disfigurement or anything, is in and of itself communicates a few really important points. We'll get to those in a minute. 
<clears throat> so then it goes on in chapter 22. And, and remember, chapters were not original. Verses were not original. This is all one section. This is a case where your Bible breaks it up with a chapter that maybe isn't the most helpful because uh, it just continues on. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Direct Aaron and his sons to deal carefully with the sacred donations of the people of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so that they may not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. Say to them, if anyone among all your offspring throughout your generations comes near the sacred donations which the people of Israel dedicate to the Lord while he is in a state of uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. No one of Aaron's offspring who has a leprous disease or suffers a discharge may eat of the sacred donations until he is clean. Whoever touches anything made unclean by a corpse or man who has an omission of semen and whoever touches any swarming thing by which he may be made unclean or any human being by whom he may be made unclean, whatever his uncleanness may be, the person who touches any such shall be unclean until evening and shall not eat of the sacred donations unless he has washed his body in water. When the sun sets, he shall be clean, and afterward he may eat of the sacred donations, for they are his food. That which died or was torn by wild animals he shall not eat, becoming unclean by it. I am the Lord. They shall keep my charge so that they may not incur guilt and die in the sanctuary for having profaned it. I am the Lord. I sanctify him. So now he says, moving from the requirement of the priest's body to the requirement of the priest's cleanliness or, or, or sanctification or holiness, the things that would not be an intrinsic blemish, but would be an external blemish. Now, we looked at this in previous chapters. You've been with us through the study. You've seen all it's none of this is new. All these things that have been mentioned before, touching something that makes you unclean. We talked about bodily emissions and skin diseases and things that swarm and all of that stuff and how it makes you unclean. And we also saw that uncleanness was not sinfulness. It was just you can't offer the sacrifice. Carrying the analogy that we looked at last week, you're in the OR room. Right. If a nurse comes in to help the surgeon, the assistant, uh, if the nurse comes in and and doesn't wash his or her hands, they can't help perform the surgery. It renders them unclean. All right. So that's kind of a way to think about it, but but at a metaphysical level rather than a bacteria uh, level. So if, if what he's saying, if the priests do something that make them unclean, then they have to go outside of the operating room and they have to wash themselves and they have to wait until evening and then they become clean again and then they can come in the next day and continue their duties. So it's preser- this is all about preserving that, that um, hermetically sealed holiness area inside the sanctuary. So the priest, again, he's emphasizing this and he's emphasizing it at, through threat of death. We saw what happened with Aaron's own sons. When they offered the unauthorized fire, the fire that consumed the sacrifices on the altar, immediately consumed his two sons who dared to approach it on their own terms rather than on God's terms. God's not playing around with Israel because this is a crucial point in the history of salvation for all of mankind. Israel is to be his covenant people. They are to fulfill the promise he made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12 that through them... All the nations of the earth will be blessed. So they have to get it right. Remember, this is boot camp. Picking up on from a few weeks ago, this is boot camp. And in boot camp, you make your bed, you shine your shoes, you stand at attention, you do all these little things because they are incredibly important for instilling a bigger mindset. So he goes on then it says, verse 10, No layperson shall eat of the sacred donations. 
No bound or hired servant of the priest shall eat of the sacred donations. But if a priest acquires anyone by purchase, the person may eat of them, and those that are born in his house may eat of his food. In other words, these gifts, the sacrifices is what it's talking about. Sacred donations are the offerings that the people would bring as their gifts. And these were how the priests ate. These were how they fed their families. Priests couldn't own land. Priests couldn't raise animals. Priests couldn't sow fields or plant crops. They relied entirely on the support of the people they ministered to. And Paul draws a specific parallel into the New Covenant as well. People who labor in the gospel full-time, then the people who, to whom they labor over are to support them financially. Not necessarily with a private jet or their own mansion or any of that nonsense that people <laughs> twist it to get, but they should be provided for. They shouldn't go hungry ministering to God's people. And the Levites were, um, were provided for in this way. Then he goes on to say, if a priest's daughter marries a layman, she may not eat of the offering of the sacred donations because she's part of a new family now. She's no longer a priest's family. But if a priest's daughter is widowed or divorced without offspring and returns to her father's house, as in her youth, she may eat of her father's food because she is part of the priestly family again. No layperson shall eat of it. If a man eats of the sacred donation unintentionally, he shall add one-fifth of its value to it and give the sacred donation to the priest. No one shall profane the sacred donations of the people of Israel, which they offer to the Lord, causing them to bear guilt, requiring a guilt offering by eating their sacred donations. For I am the Lord, I sanctify them. So the offerings are sanctified. The offerings are to be kept pure as well. You can't intentionally or unintentionally come and just eat of the stuff that's been offered to the priests. All right. Then there's a lot of ways this could happen. It wouldn't be at one central time. This is always going on. There were thousands of Levites and priests. You know, this is just an ongoing economy. So it could be very easy. You, you, somebody offers you something that you don't realize, oh, this came from the priestly donation. Oh, I didn't realize it. Well, it doesn't mean God's going to smite you down. It just means make restitution. Add a fifth of it. Give it back to the priest or back into that system. Verse 17, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel and say to them, When anyone of the house of Israel or of the aliens residing in Israel presents an offering whether in payment of a vow or as a free will offering that's offered to the Lord as a burnt offering, to be acceptable on your behalf, it shall be a male without blemish of the cattle or of the sheep or of the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable on your behalf. When anyone offers a sacrifice of well-being to the Lord in fulfillment of a vow or as a free will offering from the herd or from the flock, to be acceptable, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Anything blind or injured or maimed or having a discharge or an itch or scabs, these you shall not offer to the Lord or put any of them on the altar as offerings by fire to the Lord. An ox or a lamb that has a limb too long or too short, you may present for a freewill offering, but it will not be accepted for a vow. Any animal that has its testicles bruised or crushed, oh, that came back again. Interesting. Any animal that has testicles bruised or crushed or torn or cut, you shall not offer to the Lord. Such you shall not do within your land, nor shall you accept any such animals from a foreigner to offer as food to your God, since they are mutilated with a blemish in them. They shall not be accepted on your behalf. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When an ox or a sheep or a goat is born, it shall remain seven days with his mother. From the eighth day on, it shall be acceptable as the Lord's offering by fire. But you shall not slaughter from the herd or the flock an animal with its young on the same day. When you sacrifice a thanksgiving offering to the Lord, you shall sacrifice it so it may be acceptable on your behalf. It shall be eaten on the same day. You shall not leave any of it until morning. I am the Lord. 
Thus you shall keep my commandments and observe them. I am the Lord. You shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord. I sanctify you. I, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God, I am the Lord. So now we start to see that blemish thing come back. And here's the catch. The, the, the qualifications for who could be, not be a priest based on blemish are the exact same for what could not be offered on the altar. They're the same terms. So the things that disqualify an animal as a sacrifice also disqualify a person from being the priest that offers that sacrifice. So there's some interesting things that that in and of itself shows us. One of the things it shows us is that the priests, in, in a way, are symbolically or, or, or visually or in their criteria, they are living sacrifices. They, are, they have the same criteria as the animals that can be offered. So that parallel between the animal's blemish and the priest's blemish and what negates either is one of the things it shows is that the priests are, in a, in a theological or symbolic sense, living sacrifices, offering sacrifices on behalf of people. That has huge Christological implications for the true capital P priest who would come, Jesus, who would be the sacrifice of all sacrifices. There's a symbolism built into the system itself. So the priests, just like the sacrifice has to be a lamb without blemish, the priests have to offer it. They have to be without blemish because all of that points forward to, anticipates, or prefigures the one who would come, who would literally be without stain or blemish from a moral theological standpoint, the Lamb of God, Jesus himself. More than that, too, the, the thing that I find so fascinating about it is the tabernacle, <clears throat> the tabernacle, and, and, and you would have to have been with, our, with us through the Exodus study last year to note this. If you missed it, you can catch it on our uh, website podcast. But the tabernacle was a little microcosm or a little symbolic representation, not just of Mount Sinai, although it was, but of the Garden of Eden itself. It was, it was like a little mini Eden. It was, it was bounded on four sides. It had cherubim there. It had the tree uh, with the, the menorah that stands in the midst. Um, it, it, the, the priests were like the, the new Adam, so to speak, the heavenly man who would approach God. Um, all of this symbolism, and it goes all the way back into Exodus, so we don't have time to get into it now. But the Holy of Holies especially, that system inside the actual tabernacle was like a little mini Eden. And, and so whenever people would enter into it, bring a gift to it, they are entering into this place where heaven and earth meet and where God and people commune, just like in Eden. And in Eden, when God and people literally communed, there, was, there wasn't stain or blemish. There wasn't deformity or sin or death or decay, at least among humans. <clears throat> it was, they were the image of God. They were the bearers of God's standard. They were stewards of God's creation. They were perfect in that sense. And so this symbolically calls to mind in the minds of Israel those, that Eden state, that, that, that purity state, that, that sin and death stands in stark opposition to. Because it was death, human death came after the sin and humanity was expelled from the Garden of Eden to the east. So now to enter into the presence of God again, they once again enter from the east 
the way the tabernacle is set up. And they enter into God's presence. And just like with Eden, there's a, a cherubim with a sword standing there. In Eden, it was literal, uh, whatever it looked like. It was placed to block people from returning to the garden. In the tabernacle, it's woven into the curtain that separates God from his people. So all of this is, is rich with symbolism of Eden. And so it only makes sense that those ministering in that state are themselves to reflect and, and to uh, present visually this idea of before sin and death and decay, no blemishes, no disfigurement, no imperfection. That's part of why God's, in, in, excuse me, part of why God's demanding this system be put in place. Because it is a longing when you go and present your sacrifice. <clears throat> there's a longing to be restored to that state that sin messed up. There's a longing to be restored to fellowship with God. There's a longing for all the nations to come back into fellowship with God back in Genesis 12. That's the promise. So that's the whole goal of this tabernacle thing and Israel as a people. So it only makes sense then that the act that's central to it would involve not just people, but also animals that were visually speaking free from the effects of sin and death, which is disfigurement and decay and things being messed up. Now, it's only symbolic, though, because the priests that did offer the sacrifices were not perfect. They did have moral imperfection. As physically unblemished as they were, they were still blemished in their soul. And the animals that were offered were still under the curse of sin and death. In fact, they actually died in the process to bring the people together. So there was all of this longing for the perfection that was lost in Eden. And it would happen, so the sacrifices were not just, they were something of an invitation back into the presence of God, but they were also at the same time, paradoxically, a stark reminder of the gulf that separated humanity from that intimacy with God and symbolized or prefigured mostly in death, which is what would happen to the animal that was offered. So all of this symbolism is, is, is swirling around this tabernacle and the priesthood and what they're doing. So when we read these, these seemingly arcane rules and we start jumping to, oh, well, that's not fair. We, you know, we live in a society where there's all kinds of you know, access for handicap. And, and if you're disfigured or if you, you know, my mom, one of her legs is shorter than the other. She has to get her shoes fixed and so she doesn't have a weird limp when she walks. She couldn't be a priest. She's also a woman, so she couldn't be a priest at this time as well. But regardless... It's, it, but it has nothing to do with her intrinsic worth. You know, it's not a judgment on her. Of, you know, if you, if you physical deformity or, or disfigurement, any of that, God's not making a judgment on that. And he's not creating a caste system of people. What he's saying is there's a job, a specific job for specific people in Israel that requires specific attributes. Because that job, by its nature, is showing my people a very important thing about my nature and a very important thing about their fallen nature. And so all of this is what's going on in this system. But more than that, more than looking back to Eden, the sacrificial system and the, and the perfection of the priest, when I say perfection, I mean physical without blemish, not moral. The perfection of the priest and the perfection of the animals offered, they point forward to Jesus as well because he was the perfect sacrifice. But that even more so, like a rock skipping on a lake, that itself rebounds, points forward to the final 
state that Scripture points us to. The final goal, the end result of everything, which is the new Eden, the new creation. Scripture begins in the Garden of Eden. Scripture ends in the new Garden of Eden. If you look at the end of Revelation, when he sees New Jerusalem coming down from heaven, it's described with Eden imagery everywhere. Rivers, trees with fruit, leaves for healing of the nation rather than covering of the shame. Um, It's described as as Edenic. There's no more death. There's no more crying. There's no more curse. It's, It's like Eden to the nth degree is where it's headed. So the priests not only hearken back to the perfection that humanity lost through sin and death, but they look forward to the restoration of perfection and the ultimate destiny that God wants not just His people to experience, but He wants His people to bring the entire world into relationship with Him so that all of humanity can experience that ultimate healing and that ultimate perfection. So there's very strong visual symbolism in this sacrificing and priesthood. And we miss it a lot of times. We miss it because we don't step back from the Bible and get a 30,000 foot view of the whole story. We're so focused on our daily devotional or our memory verse or our list of do's and don'ts or just getting through the book of Leviticus so we can say we read it. We're so focused on those things that we miss the overall picture. And when you step back, so in, in art school, some of my favorite artists were the Impressionists. And Impressionists were... Uh, artists who they broke all the rules of classical art. Their work was hated at the time. They would not even be allowed to be shown in galleries. Things that we see on, on doctor's office walls and hotel lobbies and think is beautiful, people at the time hated it. They thought guys like Monet and Manet and Van Gogh and Seurat and all those other ones, they thought they were disgusting and horrible. I mean, you can read about the reaction to the Impressionists by the elites in the art world. Well, the Impressionists would... Instead of trying to paint a tree with every leaf in perfect condition and, and the shadow just right and the, the line of everything delineated in this precision, they would just put paint on there in blotches or dots or slash strokes or just very loose. And what they were trying to do was capture a feeling and an overall sense of what was going on and to actually paint the imperceptible, which was the light itself as it mixed and mingled and changed and moved throughout the day. So that's why you would get these paintings of things like haystacks and water lilies and Van Gogh's workers in the field and all this kind of stuff. But if you look up close, if you zoom in, like go to a Van Gogh painting and zoom in really, really close and look at it from this, it doesn't look like anything. It looks like just paint smeared on the canvas. You have to step back and see the picture and then it's amazing how much it looks like what it was intended to look like. Same thing with all the other artists as well. Seurat, the guy that just did dots, pointillism. He was just tiny dots, and you get up close, and it's just little points. But then you step back, boom, you see this image. In the digital age, tiny little pixels on the screen. You get up close to your TV, you just, now in HD it's harder, but back in the day, you guys remember the TV with the red, green, and blue? You get up really close, and it's just these little red, green, and blue bars. When you step back, all of a sudden it's this beautiful picture. Well, scripture's like that sometimes. If you get too bogged down in the details and you don't take a minute to step back and see the big picture of where everything's headed, then you miss the overall message. So with the priesthood, as we're reading Leviticus, we're going through and we're looking at the pixels. We're looking at the brushstrokes. Yes, because there's beauty in there and there's intentionality in there and there's artistry in there. But we also 
periodically have to step back and look at the whole picture. And what we do in Leviticus with that is we remember what is this thing that God set up, this tabernacle? And what are these people that he's calling to do these things called sacrifices? What's the point of all that? Because if we don't, we end up like people in Jesus' day who were so focused on getting the minutia right. They were so focused on getting every letter of the law correct that they completely missed the entire focus of that thing, which was Jesus himself standing right in their midst. And so when he came, a great majority of people who should have recognized him were the ones who were the most against him. But those who had ears to hear, those who had stepped back, those who took in the bigger picture, those who were listening for what God's doing, they were the ones who recognized it. They were the Jews who got it. God's people that had been prepared over the centuries. They took to heart what God was doing and they saw it. And when they, then when they saw it in person, it was like, aha, there he is. There's the Lamb of God. John the Baptist or, or you know, Zechariah, Elizabeth. Um, the people in the temple, the, the Simeon, when he saw Jesus and said, this is it. There were some who got it, but most didn't because they got lost in the brush strokes instead of seeing the big picture. So next week, we're going to move into sacred times. God has looked at sacred spaces and sacred things in terms of sacrifices. Next week, there's going to be sacred times, chapter 23. Um, then there's going to be some more in terms of this whole section through chapter 24 is about the holy aspects. And then in a few more weeks, we will get through in the end of it, chapter 27. So we're closing in on the end of Leviticus, probably in the fall, probably in September. We should be close to getting done, if not done. Um, then we'll do a recap and then we'll go right into where it picks up at, which is the book of Numbers. So got to go. There's still seconds here if you want some. If not, have a great week and we'll see you next time.